Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 14. And considering the way of prayer. John, chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Give attention to God's holy word. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening with a desire to hear from you. We pray you would satisfy our desire by anointing us with the Holy Spirit and blessing the means you've appointed. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, what is it that made David so great? What is it that gave Daniel the courage to face off against the lion? What is it that kept Jeremiah in the ministry after decade after decade after decade of discouragement, persecution, and almost no outward success? What was it that kept the Lord Jesus, that that, that enabled the Lord Jesus to walk on the water? What enabled the Lord Jesus to cast out demons? What was it that enabled Jesus Christ to endure the cross? Several answers could be given to all of these questions, but one answer that has to be given to all of these questions is that it was prayer. Simple, humble, faithful prayer. Just to use one of our examples, you know that the Lord Jesus, as he was on the cross, cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He was quoting Psalm 22. And he was praying while he was dying. That's how Christ endured the cross. And what we're going to learn in this passage, a very short passage, but we're going to learn that the key to the Christian life is to live it in the way of prayer. The way to walk the Christian life, the way to live out the Christian life is in the way of prayer. In this passage, we're going to see three things. First, prayer's promise in verse 12. Then, prayer's purpose in verse 13. And then finally, prayer's certainty in verse 14. Promise, purpose, and certainty in the three verses that we have before us. We begin by looking at verse 12 and considering prayer's promise. Look at the astounding thing that Christ says. Notice first how he introduces verse 12. He says, most assuredly. In the older translations, King James, this is verily, verily. In Greek, it's, it's two, uh, it's amen, amen, quite literally. And th- this is repeated. Whenever the Lord introduces a statement like this, he's getting ready to tell you something that is profound. And so he says this at the beginning. Verily, verily, I say unto you, most assuredly. Let me, let me put it this way. 
If you're confident of anything that Christ says in his word, you have to be confident of this. Now, what is it that Christ tells us? He says, I say to you, he who believes in me will do the same works that I do, and greater works than these he will do. Let that sink in a little bit. The the Lord Jesus, who was mighty in deed and in word, the, the Lord Jesus, who cast out demons with a word, was able to give sight to the blind, he was able to raise the dead. You will do similar works, yea, even greater works than these. This is the promise of prayer that Christ gives to us. Now, the question is, what are the works that he's talking about? There are many who have gone astray in in interpreting this, and what we have to recognize is that what Christ is speaking about are the miracles. Notice the immediate context at verse uh, 10 and 11. He's talking to Philip, and he says, Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The uh, The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Was the power of the Father raising the dead? It was the power of the Father multiplying the bread and fish. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And then Christ says, the works that I do, you'll do likewise and even greater works. So this is a reference to the miracles that Christ performed. Uh, We need to keep... as I said, the immediate context here and also the context of all the gospel records. You know, the the gospels are full of miracles. They're dripping with the mighty deeds of Christ. And what we need to keep in mind is we we look at these miracles and why Christ performed all of these miracles is the purpose they serve. Miracles were performed for a specific purpose. And in fact, we see it in verses 10 and 11, the passage we saw last week that we just read. Notice that he wants Philip to believe. He wants Philip to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants Philip to trust Jesus. And the argument that Jesus uses are the miracles. Believe me, or at least believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The purpose of miracles in the Bible is to ratify the doctrine. That's the only purpose miracles serve in the Scriptures. Generally speaking, there's, there's two great periods of miracles. You could count three if you want to count um, Elijah and Elisha's ministry. But in the days of Moses and in the days of Christ and the apostles, those are the two concentrated areas of extreme miracles. Moses and the ten plagues in Egypt, Christ and all the healing and all the things that the apostles did. The purpose of these things, though, is to ratify the doctrine. Very important to keep this in mind because as you probably know family and friends, you probably know co-workers that still think miracles are something we should expect in the church today. Well, as we go through this passage, we're going to see why that's not the case. Now, the next question to ask is why does the doctrine need to be verified? Why does God bring his credentials to man? We're the rebels. We're the ones who who breached the covenant, as we saw this morning. So why does God have to prove himself to us? Well, he comes not only to prove the doctrine to us, but because he wants us to be saved. 
He wants to convert men to himself. We read it in Matthew chapter 9. Christ sees the multitudes. He has compassion on them. And he says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the harvest to reap souls for salvation. So the next thing we need to keep in mind, the great works that Christ is describing are the miracles that ratify his doctrine for the purpose of converting souls. And so we can put it this way. The purpose of the miracles is to save men through faith in Christ. Now this is important to keep in mind because he says we are going to perform greater works than Christ. And I think what he's speaking about is not outward miracles. It's not raising the dead and feeding the 5,000. It's not healing diseases with the touch of a hand. It's actually the conversion of souls. These are the greater works that Christ is speaking about. And conversion, when a soul turns from darkness to light, is the greatest miracle. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul equates somebody being converted to the work of creation. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Christ speaks about those that have been converted to Christ have been healed by his stripes. Revelation 2, 17, Christ promises those that uh, repent of their wayward ways, those that overcome by faith and remain in the faith of Christ will be fed with the secret manna from heaven. And in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 6, turn to this one. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 6, Paul says that our conversion... is nothing less than resurrection from the dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and caused us to, to, to sit in heavenly places with Christ. Conversion is the greatest work that God ever does. Conversion is the greatest miracle. And so I believe that in John 14, this is what Christ is speaking about when he says, greater works than I have done, you will, done, uh, you will do. We compare this with Christ's own ministry. Turn to John chapter 6 just to see uh, an example of what Christ's preaching ministry produced. John chapter 6, verse 60 Christ has just taught some very hard doctrine. He's told the Jews that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Not only was this shocking rhetoric, this was also spiritually hard to understand. It was, it was impossible for them to understand it in their own carnal way of thinking. Look at what Christ says. Verse 60, Therefore many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? 
When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I said unto you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Christ's preaching ministry as far as outward converts was a failure. He had maybe at most less than 100 people that were faithful to him during his earthly ministry. The 12 and then the 70 that he sends out. And as we know later on, one of the 12 was a devil. So Christ's earthly ministry, though he performed all these mighty miracles, though he raised up Lazarus from the dead, his earthly ministry did not produce many converts. And yet in the apostles' ministry... They produced thousands of converts. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. This is is the, the summary of the day of Pentecost. Peter has preached this great sermon. And then in verse 43, uh, Luke records the state of this new newly formed apostolic church. Verse 43. Fear came upon every soul. Notice, many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. They're doing all the the mighty miracles. Now, all who believed were together, had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Notice, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, at this season, we have, we've got two young men that we've interviewed for membership, and so, Lord willing, weekly, we'll have two young men coming. Luke says daily they were admitting people into the church, and probably more than one at a time. Now, I want you to notice here the progression that Christ is giving us in John 14. His ministry, mighty miracles, few converts. The apostles' ministry... Mighty miracles, many converts. Where we fit in this spectrum, the way the New Testament speaks about it, we shouldn't expect the mighty miracles, but we should keep expecting the converts. The miracles will cease, but the greatest of all miracles will not cease until the Lord returns. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul speaks about spiritual gifts in this passage. And he compares, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 18, he compares the gift of tongues, which was one of those mighty miracles. In fact, that was the Pentecost miracle. The apostles started speaking in tongues. He compares the gift of tongues with the gift of prophecy. Now, to understand Paul's point here, a traditional Reformed understanding of this is that when he says prophecy, he means preaching. He's not talking about predicting the future. He's talking about proclaiming God's word for the edification of the church. That's, that's what that word means in this context. So Paul writes in verse 18, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding 
that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Isn't this amazing how Paul the Apostle compares these two things? I can speak tongues till the cows come home. But I would rather say five words, repent and believe the gospel. Because those five words spoken with the understanding convert men. Words spoken in a foreign tongue don't convert men. Keep reading. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. He means a sign that ratifies the doctrine, meaning God's going to send tongues to you to prove he was the Lord all the time. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, notice, unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he's convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. So falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That's the beginnings of conversion for the secrets of the heart to be revealed under the preaching of the Word of God. And so Paul says, these mighty signs are okay. The conversion of souls is better. So Christ says, uh, back to John 14, greater works you will do. Notice one other thing he says here. He's giving us a promise for prayer. This is the promise that undergirds prayer. Prayer is going to be attached to this as the means to the end. It's important for us to understand the promises that God gives to us, but it's also just as important to understand how prayer relates to the promises. I love what John Calvin said, and he talks about prayer. If you have the Institutes of the Christian Religion, I would encourage you to read his chapter on prayer. I believe it's chapter 20 in book 4. I may not be accurate on that reference, but if you go to the Institutes and look for his chapter on prayer, it's one of the best chapters in the whole Institutes. And of the many things he says about prayer in there, he says, the Lord has ordained that whatever we want to receive from him, we must receive it through prayer so that we would learn everything that we are and have comes as a gift of his mercy, not because of our merits. Likewise here, these great works, this promise that Christ makes to us is attached to prayer as the means by which we obtain it. We'll get to that presently in the next verse, but I want you to also notice something else here. The bounty of the Lord to his church. It's astounding to me, verses like this. The Lord Jesus Christ comes, finishes his work on the cross, and then he ascends up to the right hand of his Father. And the promise he's left the church is that with him in the presence of the Father, that means the church will grow and expand. Later on, he's going to say, it's good for you that I go away. Because then the Holy Spirit will come. And if the Holy Spirit comes, he will perform the work to glorify myself. Christ's absence from the church means the growth of the church. Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand means that the church has power beyond imagination. 
Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is given a promise. 2 Samuel 7 verse 18. In this passage, David's given a promise that of his seed, there would be one to sit on the throne of Judah forever. And that this seed that's going to be given to David, God says, I will call him my son and I shall be his father. And and the Lord gives this vision to David and then in verse 18, King David went in and sat down before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. You've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of men, O Lord God? What are you doing, Lord? You're promising me something beyond what I deserve, beyond my ability to accomplish. You're showering the blessings of heaven upon me. This is not the way of men. This, this is the way of God in his grace and mercy. This is the way of Jehovah towards his people that he loves. He gives them blessings beyond blessings and on top of blessings. Even as John says in the beginning of his gospel, we all beheld his glory and received grace upon grace. Upon grace upon grace. Likewise, David here says, Lord, this is not the way of men. And what more can I say in verse 20? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, You have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see in this promise that you will do greater works than Christ. The greatness of God's heart. The character of God's love to his church. The care that God has to the glory of the name of his son. For just as David teaches us, it's in these promises that we see the character of Jehovah. We see the greatness of his church. Uh, uh, The greatness of his promises. And so just as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, now unto him who is able to do above and beyond what we ask or think. Be glory in the church through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Let me apply this to our hearts just at this point. Brothers and sisters, make bold prayers. God has made bold promises to you. As long as your faith in the promises is small, your prayers will be feeble. But as your faith in the promises grows, your prayers will grow exceedingly. The reason we don't find the success that we hope to find in prayer, often, this is not always the case, but often, The reason we find ourselves weak in prayer is because we're weak in faith. We don't really believe what God told us. Or if if we believe it, we may not really care. And so prayer becomes a burden. Prayer becomes something that we avoid. When in actuality, if your faith is strong, your prayers will be mighty. Your prayers will be mightier than Jacob. You remember what Jacob did? Jacob had faith. He had a lot of faults, but he had faith. 
And Jacob, when he was praying, wrestled all night with the angel, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you fulfill my, your promises to me. I will not let you go. And he prevailed over God in prayer. And he earned the name Israel, a prince with God. Brothers and sisters, pray bold prayers. God has made bold promises to you. There's a little bit of practical piety for us here to grow in our spiritual life. Our faith grows weak as we neglect the means of grace. As worldliness creeps in, and as we cherish sin in our hearts, that saps faith. That's the death knell of faith. Listen to what uh, the Lord says in Psalm 50. Psalm 50, the Lord is speaking, verse 16, he's speaking to the wicked, which among other things, there are those that don't believe in Jehovah. And I want to read this passage so that you can notice the description of the wicked and how worldliness and sin works in their hearts. The Lord says to the wicked, what right have you to declare my statutes or to take my covenant in your mouth? What right do the wicked have to claim forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why? He's going to keep going. Seeing that you hate instruction and cast my words behind you, neglecting the means of grace. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and you become a partaker with adulterers, worldliness. You give your mouth to evil, your tongue frames deceit, you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son, worldliness and sin in the heart. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. He who offers praise glorifies me. Here's the key point, verse 23. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Ordering your conduct aright means repenting. Repenting from our worldliness, repenting from our neglect of the means of grace, repenting from all of these things so that we can see the salvation of God. Brothers and sisters, be on guard against worldliness. Worldly influences will choke you out, just as our Lord said in the parable of the sower. Another thing to encourage us in our practical piety as as you want to grow in your prayer, begin praying for your own conversion. Remember that the miracles and the mighty works that God promises are all about converting the soul. Start praying for your own conversion. Now you may be thinking, I'm already converted. Let's see what Paul says in Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. You may be converted. I trust that everyone in here is converted. Paul was a convert. And he prayed and labored for his further 
conversion. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Uh, The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, your destiny is eternal glory with Christ forever. Everything between now and then is preparation. It's running the race that Paul runs. And so I encourage you, based on God's promises, pray for your own conversion. Pray for your own growth in grace. You see besetting sins? Pray. Lord, you said that I would do greater works than Christ. I need this sin out of my life. I call your promise to the stand for you to prove yourself to me. Pray for your own conversion. And pray for the conversion of those around you. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for your elders. Pray for your pastor. Pray for the growth of grace of all those who are around you. And pray for the conversion of sinners in the world. Brothers and sisters, our country is in a mess. The only thing that will save it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only thing the Lord Jesus Christ does to save nations is to convert them in this day and age. Pray for the conversion of people around you. Pray for the conversion of sinners in our land. Well, notice we not only have prayers promised, but we also have a purpose in verse 13. Verse 13, Christ begins to speak about the purpose of prayer. Notice what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Here's the grand purpose of prayer. The glory of the Father through the Son. In several of Paul's epistles, we see this, this same idea repeated. Romans 16, 27. Ephesians 3, 21. I quoted it earlier. Now unto him who is able to do abundantly above what we ask or think. To him be glory in the church through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.11, Paul prays that you would be filled with all the fruits of righteousness that are by Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, do it by giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate purpose for prayer. Secondly, realize that this is the only way for God to get glory. This is the only way that God gets his proper glory. Because it is only the Son that knows the Father. And the Father knows the Son perfectly. So for the Father to be glorified, it can only happen through the work of the Son and in the name of the Son. And so Christ says the purpose is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He says a few more things in this verse. Whatever you ask in my name... To ask something in Jesus' name, to pray in Christ's name, means uh, really one thing. It means to rely on Him as He has been given to us. Now, how has Christ been given to us? He's been given two names, Jesus and Christ. So to pray in the name of Christ, we are to pray in the name of Jesus, trusting in Him as the only Savior from sin. 
When we pray in the name of Christ, we are going to God, emptying ourselves of all pride and of all self-righteousness and confessing before God, the only way I can pray to you is because my Savior has saved me, because Jesus has delivered me from my sins. That's what it means to pray in the name of Christ, uh, the name of Jesus. To pray in the name of Christ, it means to recognize and confess that Christ is the anointed one. That's what the word means, Christ, anointed one. In the Old Testament, it's Messiah. But because he's the anointed one, he is the only one upon whom all of God's favor and blessing abides. For Jesus to be called the Christ, that means he is the darling of heaven. He is the only one that the Father loves unconditionally. He is the only one that has received grace upon grace. He is the repository of all the blessings of the covenant. It's all in Christ. That's the only place you can go to find him. So to pray in the name of Jesus Christ, it is to rely on Jesus for these two things. Deliverance from sin and acceptance with the Father. And all of the grace and blessing that we hope for, we find it only in Christ. John Owen once, once commented, uh, he, he wrote in one of his books, uh, it's called Communion with God. He says, each person of the Trinity has a unique sort of characteristic in how they relate to us. 2 Corinthians 13, the great benediction at the end of that book, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost. God the Father is uniquely the one that loves you and adopts you. The Holy Spirit is the one uniquely that is with you and in you. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is uniquely the one that favors you with grace because he first off was favored by the Father. This aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. All of these blessings and graces of the covenant, they are all in Christ. And that's why Paul the Apostle said, I've been given this high privilege to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Christ is an abyss of blessing and grace and glory. You will never reach the bottom. Christ has more merit, more righteousness, more blessing, more joy, more peace, more life. Whatever you need. It's all in Christ, and he never runs out. The unsearchable riches of Christ. So this is what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, is to rely on him for these two things, the forgiveness of sins and the blessings of the covenant. That's how we go to the Father and pray in his name. It does not mean that we simply repeat his name unthinkingly. Now, we often will say the Lord's name at the end of our prayers, but I want to caution you against doing it without understanding. The words that we are told to pray in, we're not like heathens that recite our magical charms and hope the spirits will bless us. We have to pray with understanding. So understand what you're doing when you pray in the name of Christ. Not only does he say, if you pray in my name, he also says, I will do whatever you ask. Christ will do it. He does this in the fulfillment of his role as the mediator. 
He is the only mediator between God and man. Turn rather quickly to John 4. John 4, where Christ speaks about his food. John chapter 4, verse 31. Christ has been speaking to the woman at the well. The disciples come back to him, and it says, In the meantime, the disciples said unto him, Rabbi, eat. He said unto them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What Christ is telling us in John 14 about prayer Him answering your prayers is finishing the work the Father has given him to do. Let me put this another way. In the Proverbs, it says that men labor for their stomachs. The reason they work so hard is to gain the food they need to eat to live. What Christ is saying in this passage is that the one thing he labors for, the one thing he does is to do the will of his Father. It's his food. It's his chief desire. It's the thing that keeps him going. And so Christ promises us, if you pray in my name, whatever you ask, I will do it. Well, to apply this to our prayers, this is is very important to keep in mind. In your prayers... Whatever you may be asking for, it may be healing from a disease, it may be conversion of a family member, it may be provision during times of economic hardship, it may be wisdom, it may be guidance, whatever you're asking for, all of it has to be submitted to God's glory. Everything we ask for in prayer has to have an eye towards the glory of the Father. That's the purpose of prayer. Prayer's purpose is not to get our way Prayer's purpose is not to do anything else except to glorify the Father. The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God forever. One of the means to that end, one of the chief means to that end, is prayer in the name of the Son to the glory of the Father. Here also is another bit of a guide for public prayers when you're praying praying in a group. Whenever you pray in a group, make sure that you're praying to glorify and exalt God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Especially when you're in a group. Pray to the glory of the Father. Don't pray for your own glory, but pray for His glory. Well, not only do we have the the promise and the purpose, we also have the certainty. Notice what verse 14 is. It's just a repetition. He started this passage with a repetition. He ends this passage with a repetition. He repeats the promise. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The reason for this is to strengthen our faith. We need this, don't we? We need to have our faith strengthened in prayer. Especially in our day and age, you know, I think with our technology and with our engineering, with our science, our day and age is very disconnected from the spiritual world, from the unseen realities. And so Christ has to repeat this for us because what he's telling us 
is that prayer moves mountains. Whatever you ask me, I will do it. And by the way, whatever you ask me, I will do it. Brothers and sisters, it's no small thing to have a blank check from the God of heaven. It is no small benefit of the gospel that poor, helpless, a weary sinner can call upon God at any time, in any place, you can cash this check, no matter where you are in life. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, he says, What great nation is there that has God so near to us that we can call upon him for whatever we need? Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Being justified by the grace of by the grace of the Lord Jesus, we have peace with God and access through Him. The book of Hebrews talks about the ministry of the great high priest allows us to go to the throne of grace to find mercy to help in time of need. James says in chapter 1 of his letter, does any of you lack wisdom? Ask and God will give it freely. God will give more than you can handle if you ask Him in faith. Brothers and sisters, it is no small thing to have the living God give you a blank check and say whatever you want. In my name, to my glory, I'll give it to you. All you have to do is ask. The magnitude of this promise, it's, it's really hard to swallow the, the size of this promise. The magnitude of this promise is such, it, it, it can't even, we can't even hold it in, let alone believe that Christ would give us this kind of promise. It's very much like the resurrection. Look at Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 36. Luke 24, verse 36, the disciples are talking amongst themselves and and as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, supposing they had seen a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy. You understand what Luke is saying here? Their unbelief is not a refusal to believe what Christ is telling them. Their unbelief is an inability How can this be that he's back from the dead? How is it that God can perform this great work? They didn't believe for joy. And they marveled. And he said to them, Do you have any food? Brothers and sisters, God's promise to you in prayer is astounding. And all you have to do is lay a hold of it. In your closet, in your families, in public. Ask Him. And He will give it to you. 
Mary, Queen of Scots, once said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. When Paul the Apostle was converted, the sign that Christ gave to his servant was that, behold, he prayeth. Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, the first distinction between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous called upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 15, the Lord's admonition to his people, he says simply this, call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall answer me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray in his name. And watch what God will do. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. And more importantly, we thank you for the mediator who makes this gift effectual. We ask that you would hear our prayers and do mighty things for your church that we in some small measure might be blessed to do the same kind of works as Christ, even greater works than Him, that souls would be converted, and that Christ would be glorified. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.